Let's pray. Father, we come to the home stretch of yet another book of Scripture together as a congregation. I pray that as we open the Scriptures one final time to 1 John, that you would come and that you would open our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would incline our hearts toward the Scriptures, not simply to see what is here, but to love and to rejoice over what is here. And I pray, Father, that as our convictions are settled on Scripture this morning, that, that Christ-like character would be the result, that we would see the um, simple and profound life application of this teaching that we've been chasing now for months, the assurance of salvation as taught in 1 John. Come now and do all these things and more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Fourteen weeks ago, we began our spring and summer sermon series entitled Three Letters from the Disciple Whom Jesus Loved, a study of first, second, and third John. That's, that's John. That's the disciple whom Jesus loved. And this morning, as I, as I prayed and as we prayed together, you may be aware that we reached the final passage in the first leg of this sermon series. And it is to that final passage that I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles at this time. Let's open to 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. If you'd like to use one of the red Bibles in the seats in front of you, underneath the seat in front of you, the text begins on page 1023 and goes on to 1024. So 1023 and 1024 in those red Bibles underneath the seat in front of you. 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. Our focus over these months has been assurance of salvation. When we speak of assurance of salvation, what we mean is a settled, confident conviction from God that you are in right relationship with God. That's what we mean by assurance of salvation. I'll say it again. A settled, confident conviction from God that you are in right relationship with God. And as we've learned over these last several weeks, assurance of salvation really is assurance of the new birth. We're talking about assurance that you and I have indeed been born again. If we are, we want to know it. If we aren't, we want to, we want to know it as well. In 1 John, there are four clear marks of the new birth. If you remember them, perhaps you can repeat them with me. You know that you've been born again when you confess the Christ, hate your sin, walk the walk, and you love the church. Now, as we come to our final passage in our study of 1 John, we simply want to ask an incredibly crucial question that John addresses, and that would be this. Why does this matter? I hope you ask that question because the Apostle John is terribly interested in answering it over these last several verses. Let's say that we are crystal clear as to what the marks of the new birth are. We, we understand with precision what Scripture says on this topic. Now we're asking the question, if we can, with respect, what's the cash value of this? 
Like, why does this really matter to get this settled? Is this news that we can actually use? And if it is, what's its impact? How does assurance of salvation actually serve and function to make a difference in the everyday life of a Christ follower? That's what we're after today. So as we approach this passage and seek to apply its context, I think we're going to be bound to discover this, that the biblical doctrine of a believer's assurance isn't merely theoretical. It is practical and it is powerful. The biblical doctrine of a believer's assurance isn't merely theoretical. It is practical and it is powerful. This morning, let's focus on four concrete ways that a solid grasp of the scriptural teaching on assurance of salvation matters. Here's the first of four reasons it matters. Point number one, assurance of your salvation in Christ matters. It matters deeply in your prayers for mission. Assurance of your salvation in Christ matters. It matters deeply in your prayers for mission. Would you follow along with me as I read 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 to 17? 1 John 5, 13 to 17. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. Do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. But assurance of your salvation in Christ matters. It matters deeply in your prayers for mission. I, I wish I didn't have to say mission, because that is precisely what John understands as an apostle. An apostle is a sent one, writing a letter about the mission to be and make disciples of Jesus for a, a local congregation, or perhaps a gathering of local congregations. This letter is fuel for the mission. Would that we could simply say prayers in our culture and we would understand prayers for the forward mission of the message of Jesus. The mission to be and make disciples of Jesus. In other words, prayer is not a toy for us to play with. Prayer is not primarily a method or a means for our own self-fulfillment. Rather, prayer is the privilege of a live, real-time feed of communication between the church in the trenches of her mission and our Father who is on his throne in heaven. It's possible that no one put it better than John Piper when he asked first this question 30 years ago. He writes, Could it be that many of our problems with prayer and much of our weakness in prayer comes from the fact that we are not all on active duty, and yet we still try to use the transmitter. We've taken a wartime walkie-talkie and tried to turn it into a civilian intercom to call the servants for another cushion in the den. It's true. For far too many of us, this is the default function of prayer, and we know it if we're honest. Prayers for health, prayers that God would make our lives somehow easier. Our language betrays this. Journey mercies, hedges of protection, 
cliches of American evangelicals at prayer are legion. Less frequent are prayers from folks like us that the Holy Spirit would help us to better understand biblical doctrine. Or that the Holy Spirit would birth and develop Christ-like character in our lives. Or that the Spirit would open a door for the purpose of sharing the gospel with a neighbor this afternoon. So prayer is for mission. Now let's see how prayer is connected to assurance of salvation. Verse 13. We, we have the theme verse of the entire epistle. The sentence in which the entire letter of John turns. Verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Now that's assurance, but what's it good for? Why is assurance of salvation a valuable reality? He tells us in the next few verses, doesn't he? Verses 14 and 15. And this is the confidence, read assurance, the confidence that we have toward him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. Think of that. The all-powerful, all-wise, ever-present God listening to us, hearing us, the privilege of this. And when we pray in conformity to his will, we have what he asked of us, or what we asked of him, excuse me. We have what we asked of him. Which, of course, begs the question, how do you know what God's will is for us? How do we pray for God's will to be done? What are the specifics here? The answer to that question is found in John 15, 7. John 15, 7, Jesus says in language that's very familiar here that John would have heard in the upper room, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Did you hear that? There's a condition that's understood to be woven right into this amazing privilege of having the ear of the God of the universe. And the condition is that you know his word well enough that you are familiar with his promises, well enough to know what to ask for. We are to pray according to his will. So we learn his will by devouring his word. And as his word abides in us, we are invited to ask away because we have, we will presently have the requests that we've asked of him. Do you see how this takes assurance? Assurance merely to enter into the presence of a holy God. And we do that with confidence through the blood of Jesus, as the book of Hebrews says, through the new and living way of the gospel of Christ. And secondly, not only to enter in through the blood of Jesus with confidence to come boldly through God to God's throne of grace, but to know that we can pray so confidently that we actually have what we are asking for as we are asking for it. That's assurance. That's a practical application of the doctrine of assurance. We can put it this way. Assurance of salvation from God begets confidence in prayer to God. Now, until or unless we see that, verses 16 and 17 are going to remain utterly perplexing for us. This was something that dawned on me maybe Wednesday of this past week. On the surface of it, it looks as though in verse 16, John just kind of zigzags, that he leaves his discussion about prayer and assurance, and he's now off to discuss an entirely unrelated matter uh, about corrective church discipline. 
But there are some pointers here in verses 16 and 17 that reveal to us that John has not abandoned his topic about assurance and prayer. Rather, that John is now giving a concrete example of how this might work out. The clues that he leaves for us are the words ask and pray, both found in verse 16. Let's read the next two verses. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that does not lead to death, that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. It would be easy to get bogged down in the question of sorting out sin that leads to death and then sin that does not lead to death. I don't think it's John's intention to trip us up here. Remember, all he's doing in verses 16 and 17 is giving us an example of how a person can have confidence before God by bringing a sinning member of the family of God before the throne. That's what John's doing here. So what's the difference between sin that leads to death and sin that does not lead to death? My answer is that John is referring to unrepentant, unregenerate, unbelieving behavior in the church. Unrepentant, unregenerate, unbelieving behavior among God's people. And you may be wondering if this could ever be you. And my answer is, not if you're born again. For example, 1 John 3, 9 says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Verses 16 and 17 are a practical example of the power of intercessory prayer for the recovery of sinning brothers and sisters in the local church. Do you do this for this church? The effectiveness in our mission hangs largely on the health of our local fellowship. Fallen comrades and disharmony in the ranks weaken our fellowship, and they can and should be addressed by prayer to God for one another. Assurance of your salvation in Christ matters deeply. It matters in your prayers for mission. Second reason, the assurance of your salvation in Christ matters. It matters deeply in your protection from apostasy. Assurance of your salvation in Christ matters. It matters deeply in your protection from apostasy. Now, apostasy is not a term that we use often or that I use very often. So let's define it. Apostasy literally, if you were to take the word apart, means a standing off. Or more familiarly, it refers to the falling away of a person from the faith. We've been dealing with the topic of assurance of salvation over this last season. But you'll notice we haven't touched with specificity the issue of eternal security perseverance of the saints, whether or not someone who's genuinely born again can actually fall away to their eternal destruction. My central reason for not, from refraining rather, from preaching on the issue is because I don't believe John tackles that topic in this letter until here. Assurance of salvation is a present experience. It's a contemporary reality. 
And that means that folks on both sides of the issue of whether or not you believe you can lose your salvation, folks on both sides of this issue ought to be able to have rock-solid convictions about assurance because it's a pleasant experience. It's a contemporary reality. The question is not assurance of salvation so much as present assurance of salvation. That's what we've been dealing with. Notice that each of the four marks of the new birth are, are spoken of in the present. Do you confess the Christ? Do you hate your sin? Not yesterday, today. Do you walk the walk and do you love the church? Today. So there's folks on both sides of this question, but we want to ask, what does John teach? I believe that John teaches that no one truly born again can commit apostasy. That is to say, in the final analysis, there are simply no dropouts in the Christian life. So why do I believe that? Why do I believe once saved, always saved? One reason I believe it is the way that John deals with this, this letter in a reverse sort of way back in chapter 2, verse 19. Chapter 2, verse 19, John says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. Why do I believe in eternal security, or better yet, perseverance of the saints, that all those who are truly born again will persevere till the end? I believe it because of hints like 1 John 2.19. I also believe it because of verses like 1 John 5.18. So let's turn there. You can turn a page in your Bible if you've got a Red Sea Bible. 1 John 5.18. When you begin to let this sink in, what you discover is another reason that the biblical doctrine of a believer's assurance isn't merely theoretical. It is practical and it is powerful. 1 John 5.18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So your assurance of salvation in Christ matters. It matters deeply in your protection from apostasy. First half of 1 John 5.18 should be relatively familiar to us. We've seen language like this. I just quoted it a moment ago in 1 John 3.9. It sounds a lot like 1 John 3.9. Everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. That's 1 John 3, 9. Now remember, John's not talking about sinless perfection. We have to stir in what he says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, all the way through chapter 2, verse 2. John is not talking about the perfection of our lives, but he is talking about the direction of our lives. Repentant Christ followers. That's what he's talking about here hating your sin and walking the walk. But 1 John 5.18 goes further. First, he goes further because he expresses this truth in terms of certainty. He says, we know, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. And furthermore, John goes on to say that he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Isn't that fascinating wordplay? Look carefully again at verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Who is he who was born of God? That's Christ, the only begotten Son of the Father, born of a virgin, born and brought forth in the fullness of time. He who was born of God. Who possibly could protect those who are born of God other 
than Jesus, the only unique son of God. So Jesus here in verse 18 is the protector of his people. Let's read it one more time. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Is there ever a moment in the Christian's life when Christ ceases to provide this sort of protection for a believer? I don't think we can move in that direction. It doesn't appear that way. In fact, if you place this alongside the astonishing promise that Jesus makes to believers in John 10, 27, and 30, we know this is always the way that the good shepherd defends his sheep. John 10, 27 to 30, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they know me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. The Father who is greater than me has given them to me, and no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Talk about eternal security. And you may ask, what's the, what's the practical effect of believing verse 18? That he who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one can't touch him. I can think of at least two practical applications. One application is this. It is assurance of your stone-cold ultimate triumph over sin one day. Doesn't that encourage you? This is a winnable war. You will not keep on sinning. He who was born of God protects you, and the evil one cannot touch you. That is, that is triumphantly encouraging in your struggle in life. Also, I would say, secondly, if you're born again, Jesus protects you. Evil one can't touch you. So live a life of risk for the kingdom of God. What have you got to lose? Not your salvation. So be wild in your abandon for our mission. Throw yourself into evangelism, into service, into fellowship. Lay yourself out for family and friends and neighbors and enemies. Why? He who was born of God protects you. And the evil one can't touch you. And any cup of suffering that does come your way was filled by the loving hand of your Father who is in heaven, who knows what he's doing. So go bananas for Jesus and bananas for our mission. Assurance of your salvation in Christ matters. It matters deeply in your protection from apostasy. Third reason. Assurance of salvation in Christ matters. It matters deeply in your perception of reality. Assurance of your salvation in Christ matters. It matters deeply in your perception of reality. Now, this one's really important, and it's especially relevant to this past week. So lend me your ears, if you would. 1 John 5.19. 1 John 5.19 says, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, you hear assurance in there? We know that we are from God. And yet, the portrait of humanity that John paints in verse 19 is a stark one. He's not pulling any punches. This bifurcation between the people of God and those outside the people of God is breathtaking. Only two sorts of people in this world. Only two. The first sort have assurance of their salvation because they confess to Christ and they hate their sin and they walk the walk and they love the church. The first sort of person is from God. Such are those who are born again. 
John counts himself and his church to be among them. As he writes, we know that we are from God. But notice John is not naive. He is mature enough. He is established and settled enough in his faith that he has an understanding of the awareness of the darkness outside and the reality that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's the second half of verse 19. Let that phrase settle on you, and it will provide context for what we've experienced over these last seven days. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. If there ever was a week in the history of our nation where this verse was proved to be true beyond a shadow of a doubt, I would say this one's in the running. This time last week, think of it, this time last week, Alton Sterling of Baton Rouge and Philando Castile of Falcon Heights and Michael Smith and Michael Kroll and Patrick Zamaripa and Brent Thompson and Lauren Ahrens of Dallas, all seven of these men were alive and well and enjoying Independence Day with their family and friends, all of them. By Thursday evening, each one of them breathed their last as a result of being gunned down. And what makes this violence doubly tragic is that it is interwoven, inextractably interwoven into each of these stories is the undeniable specter of ethnic hostility and racial tension and just plain sin. Our nation is burning. Our nation is fissuring and fracturing. People around us are weeping and wondering, where does all of this evil come from? And John gives a plain answer in verse 19 for all that have ears to hear. The whole world, including this nation, lies in the power of the evil one. People are looking for answers. I talk with people as you do daily. It's not difficult to discern. Folks are uneasy. They're scared. Our African-American neighbors are understandably on perpetual guard. Police officers, as they head to work, are anxious and tense. Did you read about I-94 last night? 500 demonstrators, five police officers pelted with fireworks. People are wondering what's going on, and we know what's going on, and it's not unique to our nation. Nashville pastor Ray Ortland tweeted yesterday, I find strange comfort in the biblical doctrine that Satan is real. It means that not all the evil in the world is of our own making. Amen. Notice this is the second time in two verses that the evil one is named. In verse 18, and now here in verse 19. You might ask, what can we as a church do? What do we have that the world needs? The answer to the pain of verse 18 is found in the protection of verse, excuse me, the pain in verse 19 is found in the protection of verse 18. What do we have that the world needs? Verse 18, he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. This is what our nation needs. They're in the power of the evil one. That's where all this chaos is coming from. And it's Christ and Christ alone, he who was born of God, that offers protection from ourselves as well as the enemy of our souls. 
And so what we find is that the gospel, the greatest treasure that we have to offer people, is what our nation needs most. And you may be with us today, and, and what you see here in 1 John 5.19 is leaping off the page to you because it's naming the world in which you live, naming the morning paper, which you may have read this, this day. You see the darkness around you, and you are also sensible of the sin within you, I trust. Because you know that you're not just a victim, you're also a perpetrator. How many of us, as we've been reading the news this past week, we are judge and jury all up in our heads. We have this all figured out, right? But we are perpetrators. We believe the worst of people. We harbor bitterness and hatred towards those of different ethnicities. And you have bitterness and hardness of heart. You have this toward your neighbors. And when it comes to judgment, God is no respecter of persons, so we are in trouble. What do you do? If you're asking that question this morning, I have some really good news for you. Really good news. Jesus extends to you a new life. First, he offers forgiveness of your sins through his death on the cross. But then he extends to you a new life a life through his indestructible resurrection from the dead. And what he requires of you, what he demands of you, is that you turn from your selfishness and your sin and put your faith in him. Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. Our sin is deep, but Christ's grace is deeper still. So come to him today. Assurance of your salvation matters. It matters deeply in your perception of reality. Final reason, assurance of salvation matters. Assurance of your salvation in Christ matters. It matters deeply in your pursuit after Christ. Assurance of your salvation in Christ matters. It matters deeply in your pursuit after Christ. The final two verses in 1 John. Let's read them. I'll make the briefest of comments and then we're done. 1 John 5, 20 and 21. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So assurance of your salvation in Christ matters. It matters deeply in your pursuit after Christ. Now, assurance just oozes from verse 20, doesn't it? There are five hammer blows of assurance in this verse. And were we to unfold each of them, we could be here for a whole other sermon. First, we know that the Son of God has come. Second, the Son of God has given us understanding. Third, so that we may know Him who is true. Fourth, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. Fifth, He is the true God and eternal life. By the way, if you're in the habit of collecting New Testament affirmations about the deity of Jesus and you're not familiar with this verse, add the final sentence of 1 John 5.20 to your list. It's a clear confession of the deity of Christ, that Jesus Christ is the true God. You see that in verse 20? He is the true God. And now the final verse is set in context. Jesus Christ is the true God. Little children, guard yourselves from idols or keep yourselves from idols. 1 John 5, 21. Two comments here. First on a verb, and then on a noun. The verb, keep yourselves. 
keep yourself. So who does this? You do. You keep yourself. Yes, verse 18 says that Jesus protects us. Praise God for that. But verse 21 is just as clear and just as crucial. Keep yourself. We say it in this church frequently. The Christian life is not let go and let God. It's trust God and get going. That's what verse 21 is about. So little children, keep yourselves. Keep yourselves from what? Idols. I-D-O-L-S. Idols. American idols. What's an idol? Frame it a few different ways. An idol is anything you want so bad that you are willing to sin in order to get it. An idol is something you want so bad you will sin if you don't get it. Idolatry is when we worship the things we should be using and we use the God we should be worshiping. Or perhaps the most succinct definition of idolatry I've ever heard comes from Pastor Kenny Stokes of Bethlehem Baptist Church downtown who said, idolatry is when God's gifts become God's, lowercase g. That does it for me. I get that now. Idolatry is when God's gifts become God's. So what do you need to keep your heart from worshiping this morning, this day, this week? Is it comfort? Ah, comfort's a great gift. It's a lousy God. Is it health? Great gift. Lousy God. Is it safety? Great gift. Lousy God. Is it food and drink? Great gifts. Terrible God. Is it sex or esteem in the eyes of others? Or a vision for your family or some way that you want your spouse to behave or your children to behave or not to behave? Nice gift. Lousy God. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Hymn writer William Cooper prayed this way. The dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. What is it right now? What is God putting his finger on right now in your life or in your heart? You want so bad you will sin in order to get it. Or you want it so bad you'll sin if you don't. Assurance of your salvation in Christ matters. It matters deeply in your pursuit of Christ. So let's conclude. The biblical doctrine of a believer's assurance isn't merely theoretical. I hope we see it as practical. It is powerful. Assurance of our salvation in Christ matters. It matters deeply in our prayers for mission, in our protection from apostasy, in our perception of reality, and in our pursuit after Christ. We may be coming to the end of our study in 1 John, but I trust we won't be putting its message on our shelf anytime soon. John has written this epistle that we believe in the name of the Son of God and that we may know that we have eternal life. Do you know it today? Are you clear as to the shattering importance of assurance of salvation? 
This is vitally connected to our mission to be and make disciples of Jesus. It's got a whole lot to do with our 2020 vision as we look forward to the days ahead. Mount Evangelical Free Church, confess the Christ, hate your sin, walk the walk, and love the church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of 1 John. This is one of the, the sweetest contributions in our New Testament, really in our entire Bibles, and we thank you for it. We thank you for these 14 gift weeks that we have had to consider assurance of salvation. I pray, Father, that this, this sermon series has and will continue to blow away the haze of fog in our lives as it relates to this issue. You want us to know where we are in relationship to you. You don't want us nurturing a false assurance of salvation. False assurance of the new birth is way worse than no assurance of the new birth. And yet, Father, if we are united to Jesus, if we are savingly in the fold of God, show us. Show us in our grasp of the simple gospel of Christ, crucified and risen for sinners. Show us in our hatred and our revulsion over the sin that indwells in our hearts. Show us in our uh, our abilities, meager as they are, to follow after you and to obey you in the strength that you supply to the glory that you deserve. And please show us, Lord. Show us like 1 John 3, 14 says. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Father, make our church indestructibly full and powerful with that sort of love that we would indeed lay down our lives for one another. Thank you, Father, for this series. Continue to press this into our lives in a meaningful way in the days ahead. In Jesus' name.